I'm stepping away from the mic, the ECP is in the house. Turning it over the grip, go ahead and run your mouth. Goes two for the bass and one for the trouble. Grip is gonna take the party to another level. When I swing, I bring bass like an earthquake. A heat that make the home run and make the house shake. Writing the kind of rhymes that you just can't get with. My homie hit, making the beat as funky as an armpit. Take the beat and get dope, but not crack. I mean, the kind of dope that's far from whack. Hello and welcome to episode 792 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. Dot com. I am Ben Try again. Dude, this one wants to be better. Dot com. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hey, how are you? Okay. I was watching Childhood's End last night, the miniseries from the Sci-Fi Channel adaptation of Arthur C. Clarke novel, and there's one scene where the main character flashes back to three days he spent in a honeymoon suite with his deceased wife, who was not deceased at the time, in the Four Seasons Hotel New York, and he's reminiscing and he's talking to the alien about this time, and the alien points out that he had tickets to see the Yankees play the Twins. This was 2003, so he missed the Yankees beating the Twins 3-1 in the ALDS. And that was it. That was the only baseball reference in the show. But little did I know, baseball show. Uh, opposite, Ben. The opposite. Really? Well, the the defining feature in that scene was the lack of baseball. That's true. But baseball is it, it is a, there were baseball tickets. They showed the tickets. I think that this is a, a void. This is a baseball void. I think this is a, this is very aggressively an anti-baseball movie. Huh. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. I think if you see a pennant on the wall and that's a baseball movie, then seeing a ticket to a baseball game, even if it goes unused, it's baseball. I hope that it is. I hope it came across at least to you that that the the pennant example I, that was tongue in cheek. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. All right. We got a lot of tweets <laughs> about various pennants <laughs> showing up. All right. I, by the way, I completely misremembered the Saturday Night Live sketch. Like, like yeah, I, there was I Saturday Night Live sketch, night. but the, the de- what I took from it, or what I remembered taking from it 20 years later, uh, was way off from what the sketch actually was. I took from it that Chris Kattan still isn't very funny. <laughs> That's true. Still <laughs> isn't. I mean, wasn't at the time. 20 still years wasn't. Ago. Maybe still he's wasn't. funnier now. Might be. Okay. Anything you want to talk about? No, sir. Okay. I thought we could go over some Hall of Fame results. Right. All right. We do our we do our two Hall of Fame shows generally per year, which is okay. I think we do we do one maybe talking to someone like Jay Jaffe or Ryan Thibodeau and talking about what's going to happen and then we talk about what happened and that's it. That's it's very clean and efficient. It doesn't mm-hmm. bleed over into other shows generally. So. Obviously, uh, everyone knows the results, but I thought we could go over a few things that stood out in the numbers. So Ken Griffey Jr. elected in his first year of eligibility with 99.3% of the vote. Three people didn't vote for him. I think their identities are still unknown. There was a a tweet or two about one guy who might have done it, but then there was some confusion and Obviously, everyone is ready to bring the Twitter pitchfork mob when one of those people is discovered, so you can understand why <laughs> they haven't come forward yet. Mm-hmm. And Mike Piazza was elected with 83% of the vote. So both very deserving players. Glad they got in. Congratulations to them. It's funny that we get the question a lot at the time about what you have to do to get into the Hall of Fame. I think we got a question yesterday from someone who said, what would you do if a rookie had the best year ever and then retired after that one year? Would you put him in the Hall of Fame? And no, probably not because he doesn't satisfy the rules that you, the minimum conditions that you have to meet to be in the Hall of Fame. But we do yeah, get... Don't, wait, wait, wait. Let, real quickly though, don't be a stickler. I mean, the premise is obviously that for some reason he is eligible. Yeah, right. So we do get a lot of those questions. Yes. Sometimes it's like Mike Trout, what if Mike Trout retired right now, or what if Mike Trout retired after 10 years or something like that? And you kind of have to balance the peak versus the career, and that's what Jay's system, Jaws, does very explicitly. It's just, you know, it's it's a very useful system, but also a very simple system. It's like the average of career war and peak war, and 
So those things are given equal weight in the system. But the Griffey results suggest to me that peak is given more emphasis by voters because the fact that Griffey would be the all-time leading percentage vote getter is entirely due to his peak, right? He had a fantastic first 10, 12 years or so. Up through age 30, he was one of the, I don't know, three, four or five best players ever through that point in a career. And then didn't do a whole lot after that. Most of his Hall of Fame case was done at that point. And if anything, he may have heard it after that point. He dragged down his career rate stats. His career OPS plus or his career WRC plus or whatever you want to use is not only lower than Mike Piazza's by a lot, but it's lower than Jim Edmonds, actually, by a point. So he really kind of eroded his his rate stats and was hurt, of course. And then he kind of had the depressing, like, Willie Mays-esque very end to his career where he kind of got a little chubby and then he had the clubhouse nap in the, in Seattle and all that stuff. And yet he sailed in with a higher percentage than anyone ever. And that is pretty purely due to his peak, right? Unless it's steroids, unless it's like a this guy is the one shining example of a player who didn't use steroids during the steroid era just because he's never been connected to it. And maybe that had something to do with it, but mostly it seems to be the peak. Peak matters. So, yeah, I'm, I, it's, I'm glad that you're talking about it. This was what I would have talked about if this had been my show. When, But I want to go back real quick. When you said that through age 30, he was one of the three to five best players ever? Yeah, well, Dave Cameron did a post on him and th- his through age 30, and he he was worth 63.6 wins. That's through his first decade, 89 to 98. And he showed a chart of him versus Bonds and Mays and Aaron, and Griffey's pretty much right there with them. So uh, maybe it's the first 10 seasons. But he was definitely a, an inner circle Hall of Fame type player through that point. Hang on, I'm looking because uh, on reference, it's you wouldn't put him in that. You'd say like 15th or so uh-huh. on reference. Uh-huh. Anyway, yeah, it is. It is actually. I, I was driving around yesterday wondering uh, what it is that uh, elevated him in so many voters' minds above so many other great players. And of course, to be kind of clear. What we're talking about is a, a strange distinction. Say 97% of people voted for Ricky Henderson. I think even more did, but let's say 97% of people voted for Ricky Henderson and 99.2% voted for Ken Griffey Jr. We're talking about how Griffey did a thing that nobody else has done, got the highest vote total ever. But what we're really talking about is like seven people had a different opinion for whatever reason yeah. than they did for Ricky and for various other great, great players, Randy Johnson and Greg Maddox and and others 99 you know 98% of people felt exactly the same way as uh, about about Randy Johnson and about Ricky Henderson and Greg Maddox and quite possibly uh, thought he was better and so it isn't as though we're saying wow the baseball world has spoken uh, Ken Griffey Jr is the greatest player of all time we're saying that in the way that they're that they voted Ken Griffey Jr was able to break through a barrier that is really reflective of only a, maybe a couple of dozen people who are semi-foreign to us. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, he did do it. And it is worth wondering why him, uh, why Griffey was so popular uh, among this very small subset of people who are prone to vote no on Greg Maddox mm-hmm. and Greg Maddox wasn't. And so one, you mentioned the steroids thing. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing because like, um, like, uh, like, like Ted Williams didn't do steroids. And when he came up for his vote, nobody went, that guy did it clean. Like there was no, there was no like extra points for doing it clean. It was always assumed he w- that, that everybody was clean, mm-hmm. quote unquote clean. Uh, and so it's not that Griffey is perceived to have not done steroids. It is that Griffey is perceived to have been a lone voice or a, a, a lone example of, great integrity greatness mixed with integrity during an era where a lot of people lost faith in that combination existing or where i think people felt like uh that 
all the good stuff was tainted, all the fun stuff was ripped out from under you, you know, that uh, you couldn't really rely on anything. Um, and Griffey is, is uh, in contrast to those things. So it is sort of odd that for that reason, he would get more votes than like, say, Mike Schmidt did mm-hmm. when Mike Schmidt was just as quote unquote clean. And it's also, but, you know, I could, I, I, I guess if, uh, you know, like everybody has different reasons for voting and, and for remembering players. And uh, I can understand why if you're convinced that most of the sport was rotten for 10 years or longer and that this one guy is going to go down as the, um, you know, the Neo of the sport, uh, that you would be um, especially fond of him. It's odd, though, then that Maddox wouldn't have the same. Yep. And particularly because Maddox was a pitcher, and I think there is still a perception that pitchers were the, while even though a lot of, you know, even though just as many pitchers cheated and so on, that there's a feeling that the pitchers were the victims here, other than the fans. The fans were the victims. The writers were the victims. But after the writers and the fans, the pitchers were the victims. <laughs> so it's sort of odd that Greg Maddox wasn't granted the same boost. But so that's one thing. I tend to think because of the Greg Maddox example that that is not the answer. Uh-huh. Uh, a second possibility is that this is just this is the purge. Yes. The people the people who were voting no on Ricky Henderson are gone. Yeah. And that if Ricky Henderson came up today, he he might also he might get 100 percent. I mean, it does seem. Do you think that there is any player who if they came up today for a vote, uh, given the voting pool as demonstrated uh this week uh, would get 100 percent would you know would babe ruth get 100 percent would jackie robinson get 100 percent right now uh if he were up for the vote it's hard to say because like I, what am i even asking like <laughs> the the history you know the fact that they've been dead for 60 years makes them a lot more popular and that's not what i'm asking i'm asking whether it is conceivable that uh griffey is merely merely <laughs> merely but it, the griffey is merely the beneficiary of this new voter pool uh-huh so as if there are th- the three voters who didn't vote for him thought he wasn't good enough like legitimately thought he wasn't a hall of famer just based on his performance like it wasn't Maybe. a wasn't a no one gets in on the first ballot thing it was just someone could but not griffey Maybe yeah. I don't know, or I don't know. Like Jeter, will Jeter? It, it, yeah. Who 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 are the next no doubters? Jeter Chipper and Mario Jones. Rivera. And Chipper, Chipper Jones, Jones is uh, two thousand eighteen, I think, and then Rivera's two thousand nineteen. Jeter's two thousand twenty. So will Jeter get a hundred percent, or is a hundred percent? Let me rephrase that. Will Jeter match Griffey? I would say yes. Okay. Yeah. And so if if we're saying that Griffey broke this barrier and now in three years Jeter will match it, maybe Jeter is just extra, extra special. But that would suggest that we think that uh, that the no votes were coming from people who don't get who, who get no votes anymore. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. And I mean, it was like 14 percent of the voter pool, something like that from last year didn't get to vote this year. I think Jay Jaffe said it was 90 votes or somewhere in that region. So. And if you figure that those 90 were the oldest uh, writers who were not active anymore, not covering baseball anymore, and maybe they still have that older mindset about no one getting in on the first try. So yeah, I mean, if you are just talking about a handful of votes to go from 97% to 99%, then maybe that's all it is. So, But then there's the other. Okay, so those are two possibilities. A third is that Griffey is just that cool. Uh-huh. And like when we, when people use the, uh, it's the hall of fame, you know, like yeah. when people rely on the word fame in hall of fame, mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, elevate some guys and bring down others. It does seem like, I think, I think a lot of, I agree certainly with the idea that, uh, it is not irrelevant that you also were a historically significant figure mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And, that's not enough for maybe to add 40 wars to your total. And it's not enough to knock you down just because you're Edgar or anything like that. But, you know, historically significant seems interesting and relevant. And like, that's why I would have voted for Mark McGuire over Craig Biggio, for instance. So Griffey is this perfect encapsulation, not just of great baseball, but of 
a entire generation. I mean, he like he was that card, you know, like he was the he was the Michael Jordan of the sport. Like you, you really cannot sort of overestimate or overstate how famous he was as a baseball player. Mm-hmm. He might be the last super famous baseball player who you know isn't famous for a scandal right yeah or well right i guess he's sort of famous for wearing his cat backwards which was a scandal not through his own doing but through other people's reactions to it and all the all the while he is also the best player in the american league he is uh he was the in a lot of ways he was the first prospect like I think a generation really knew, like we knew prospects definitely, but he was kind of the first guy in my generation where uh, you knew him before he'd played a game and you were trading his cards before he'd ever played a game. And I think in a lot of ways he might, I don't know if he did or not, but it may have just been coincidental, but he kind of brought in the era of, you know, the prospect baseball card hound you know, where you wanted to get the rookies and you wanted to get the guys who were debuting that year. And uh, he was, you know, he had the he had the swing and he had the style that everyone wanted to play. And he was cool and he was young and he was everything. And he had the thing with his dad. And so there was just there like, does anybody it's not ju- I guess what I'm saying, Ben, is it's not just that that peak was a historically great peak that maybe people are weighing more than the value of his entire career. And it's not just that the entire career on its own is clearly hall of fame worthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you know, even if it like, no matter how you distributed it, he is a no doubt hall of famer, but it is that during that peak, during those 10 amazing years, there is not one bad memory. There is not one <laughs> bad moment. Like there's nothing about Griffey that wasn't enjoyable for those 10 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I like how, how, you really would have to contort yourself to make an argument against voting for him. Yeah, I think you can. I think I, I think you you don't have to contort yourself too much to say, "Huh, it's weird that it's kind of weird that he got more Hall of Fame votes than Ricky Henderson," or "Hey, Chipper Jones was really good. I wonder if he'll you know uh, to sort of use Griffey's." Uh, performance to show next year when Chipper Jones only gets eighty three percent that it is making Chipper Jones underrated. Uh, but as far as actually voting no on him, I, I just can't imagine how much work you would have to do to convince yourself that that's the vote. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And it is kind of amazing that he is the first number one draft pick to make the Hall of Fame. That's because every number one draft pick has Hall of Fame expectations, basically, just by being a number one draft pick. And we've talked about how much more successful number one picks are than even number two picks. There's a big drop-off relative to, say, the drop-off between two and three or three and four or any other pick to any other pick. So when you take someone number one, you're saying, I think this guy is the best amateur player available right now. He's better than thousands of other players. And yet none of them ever made the Hall of Fame. And he's the well, first. you know, it's it's not just that, Ben, but I one time looked at what the median first overall pick does uh-huh. or who he is. And so I, you know, like I, I basically ranked all 35 first overall picks and through like I think David Price was the last one I did or something like that. And it was really interesting because before Griffey, the first overall pick was was very rarely a star. The best first overall pick before Griffey was probably Daryl Strawberry, uh-huh. who, you know, obviously not a Hall of Famer because you just said that. But then after that, even after that, I mean, he at least was a superstar for like six years. But then after that, you go down and I mean, you're basically looking at an expectation that your first overall pick would be, you know, would have a major league career and not not a whole lot more. And then after Griffey, which again, like it's not that he brought this in or anything like that, but after Griffey, you started having a lot of elite players. There's a lot of Hall of Famers who are uh, who have been drafted since, first overall since Griffey, I think, or at least guys who uh, are close or would be if not for steroids or are clearly better than Daryl Strawberry. So that's kind of another reason why 
I think 88 works as a good modern era. Griffey is kind of the one of the guys who heralded in, who brought in that era. Uh, and a lot of things I think are just different about baseball uh, after Griffey than before. And I'm not sure that, you know, he brought them with him or anything like that. Uh, but it's just, it feels like such a, a convincing line to, to draw between old baseball and new baseball. And that's why to some degree, Griffey is just so satisfying for everybody who loved baseball in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And Piazza, I, I wrote about Piazza earlier this week at 538. I think he's somewhat underappreciated, although he's obviously very appreciated. He's in the Hall of Fame. But he was just an incredible hitter. Like for the 10 best years of his career, like 93 through 2002, obviously those were crazy offense years, highest offense era ever. And you have to mentally move the the stats down a bit when you look at them but he was clearly one of the top 10 best hitters in baseball from 93 to 02 he was like eighth in weighted runs created plus if you set some minimums and you know it was bonds and bagwell and then a couple guys ahead of him who maybe are still even more underappreciated or didn't get enough support on this ballot wait 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 yeah. Can I guess? You want to guess who's ahead of Piazza? The the five people between Bagwell and Piazza? Yes. Okay. I will guess Frank Thomas, yes. Gary Sheffield. Yes. So I've got three more. Uh-huh. I don't want to guess anymore. <laughs> okay. Edgar is third oh, yeah, yeah. in that period. Sure. And Manny Ramirez and Jim Tomey, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, the difference is that all of those guys were... DHs or first baseman or corner outfielders. And Mike Piazza was a catcher. And that kind of offense from a catcher is literally unprecedented. He is clearly, I think, the best hitting catcher ever. And I think he's an underappreciated defensive catcher, one of the worst throwing catchers of all time. But based on what we can tell, good blocker and good receiver, maybe good game caller too. And if you factor in all those things. He was probably an above average defensive catcher and combining that with the best offense ever from the position and pretty decent longevity, especially for a catcher. He's an incredible player and has now been recognized as such. And I think if you go purely on career value, which there's no real reason to do, but if you do compare purely on career value, I think Piazza and Griffey are right Neck and neck, basically. Not if you compare wars, but I think Piazza is probably still underrated by wars that don't take into account some of the things he did on defense. So I would say that they are very close in career accomplishments. And I'm glad that Mike Piazza is in the Hall of Fame now. And uh, and the steroid insinuations um, did not keep him out. And, you know, with the, the steroid insin- like what do you think the baseline he used steroids estimate is for someone in this period. Cause you hear all the time from former players and the numbers vary wildly, but you hear all the time, Oh, half of guys were using or more than half of guys were using. So just, just based on the, like the, the baseline rate at that period, maybe your Bayesian expectation for someone who played then is that there was a, a decent chance that they use something and maybe that goes up a little higher if you were one of the best hitters and a big guy, or maybe it doesn't. I don't know, but there certainly were some excellent hitters and huge guys who we know did use. So for all these guys, like, you know, when when you defend them because there's no proven link, it's not necessarily that you're saying there's no way they did anything. I don't think any of us is that naive. It's just that you don't really want to see someone uh, being accused of definitely having done something when there's no proof that he definitely did it. And you don't want to extend those accusations to other people who have no evidence against them. So it's just a, it's an unpleasant thing overall. And I'm glad that didn't keep him out. Can I, I want to ask you what you think if, if we pulled the, uh, all the hall of fame voters on Piazza's defense, let's say we asked everybody to rate his defense as a catcher from one to 10, where one is, Ryan Domit and 10 is, you know, Yachty. Uh-huh. Uh, what do you think the average response would be? I'd say five. 
Oh, see, I think it'd be like two and a half. Yeah. I, I, I think maybe. the public perception of him, even the educated public perspective, perception of him, is is really that bad. Like two, like maybe two, maybe three. Like unplayable. Yeah. Yeah, maybe and so. Then so. Can, I mean, and so now, so you mentioned that it's that he's underrated defensively, that he actually did contribute a lot defensively, and you wrote about this. How put it in perspective? How good or not bad was he? He was really good. I like I set some minimums and used BP's new catcher stats, which are coming out next week, and and give you throwing ratings back to 1950 and estimated framing and blocking ratings back to 1988. So it covers more than his whole career. And of regular catchers, he was like a fifth percentile thrower, so very very bad, and a 74th percentile receiver framing. He was you know, in the, like the top quartile basically. And then he was an 89th percentile blocker. So he was almost an elite blocker. Hmm. So he was good. Yeah. And, and pitchers who pitch to him say that, I mean, I, I think Al Leiter was on MLB network yesterday praising Piazza's defense and Tom Glavin, who of course is in the hall of fame, praised Piazza's defense when Glavin was elected. So I think players who played with him, recognize that but i guess there aren't enough of those guys in the hall of fame to skew the numbers and maybe a lot of the old school hall of famers would look at his throwing and say he was terrible at that so he was terrible overall so yeah maybe you're right i wonder if uh say in five years from now let's say all this catching stuff is not only incorporated into warp but is incorporated into uh, everybody's wars and when you go to a baseball reference page you see an adjusted piazza which i assume an adjusted piazza war i i have we up have we updated at Baseball Prospectus yet? Uh, maybe. Uh, yeah. So at Baseball Prospectus, we have him at seventy-four warp. Uh-huh. At reference, he's at fifty-nine wins above replacement, uh, and that I assume I uh, I'm pretty sure is just the difference in catching metrics. Yeah, probably. So, and warps so, tend to be a little bit lower overall than wars, just because of the replacement level. The so replacement it's even, level. Yeah, it's yeah. An even bigger difference. And, of course, the standard for a catcher to get in is much lower because catchers' careers are shorter. They don't play as much yeah. each season. And so the standard for a catcher is already much lower. So, yeah, when you look at Piazza as a 74-warp catcher, that's like, you know, very, very, very inner circle. And I wonder, I, I was, I kind of, well, okay. So I wonder if in five years or ten years, uh, if all of this was on baseball reference and when you searched Mike Piazza's name and the first player page you got was reference and you looked at the war and you saw it, I wonder if in five or ten years, uh, he will or would be considered by the Hall of Fame electorate as as inner circle, as obvious a first ballot kind of guy as Griffey was, uh-huh. uh, which uh, and he he obviously isn't right now. He got elected in his second year, and still a lot of people said no. And I don't think that it's entirely steroid suspicions that are to blame for that. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is, but just curious. Uh, one more, just curious question about the electorate. Of the 440 ballots that were turned in, how many of those 440 ballots uh, were preceded by at least one look at a player's war? <laughs> um, I would say 70%. Oh, yeah. That's a lot. That's good. Yeah. I mean, because even good. if you just Google and you like read one of Jay Jaffe's rundowns or something like that, like no one on the internet who's writing about these guys doesn't mention that. So even if you didn't go to their player page, you probably saw it even accidentally. Piazza was so good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really incredible. he was so, he was so good. I, I, I think it's really important what you said that he is, he is not a great hitting catcher. I mean, there was a couple year period where he was the best hitter in the game and he was catching. Yeah. And that's just an amazing thing to be able to say about somebody like from 95 to 97, he might've been, the best hitter in baseball <laughs> yeah. for three years. And he was catching. Yeah. Like it, it's, I don't know. It feels different when you say, well, he's a, he's a good hitting catcher as to say he is an incredible hitter and he caught. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. And he, I mean, he also, by the way, he also averaged 151 games a year in that three year stretch <laughs> and he caught Ben. Yeah. If you look at, I did this in my article, but if you look at just career batting runs, by catchers, he is like 35% higher than the next guy. And the next guy, I guess, is 
is King Kelly, which maybe doesn't even count. But after that, it's Joe Torre and Mickey Cochran and then, you know, Dickey and Bench and all these guys. And Piazza's like over 100 runs higher than the next catcher. I mean, he's just kind of in his own area code at that position. So, Ben, if let's say you had a vote, a ballot, and and you could only vote for one, that the ballot was one, hmm. one name, who on this ballot would you have voted for? Huh. I, well, I probably would have voted for Piazza, I think. Just more on a he needs it more. Nah, don't do it that way. <laughs> Well, come on. I mean, if you're saying who's the best player, I, I think it probably is still Griffey. But it's... well, no, it's it spawns. You get oh, to choose well, though. Yeah, you um, you get to choose the whole ballot. Okay. Yeah, if I'm not giving any consideration to what my vote will look like to other people or what the vote will do for that player, then I mean, Bonds. I would vote for Bonds, and I think Bonds is the best player on the ballot. So. If you only had one vote, you would still be fine giving it to to Bonds. I mean, one of the nice things about voting, about being in favor of voting for Bonds and Clemens uh, is that, you know, you're not really like you have enough room on your ballot to also vote for Griffey and Piazza. Uh And if you didn't have enough room and you had to choose Bonds over Griffey with all the baggage, that that does at least complicate it somewhat, right? Yeah, I suppose a little bit. I'd probably still vote for Bonds. You could vote, I think, yeah, I think you could vote for Bonds uh, justifiably. I think you could vote for Griffey justifiably, Piazza justifiably. I think you could vote for Bagwell justifiably over Piazza or Griffey or not. You could or you could not, but I think it's, I think it's definitely plausible. I would not, I don't think. I think I'd vote for both of those guys over Bagwell. The one guy I think I could, I think that I would go go Griffey over Piazza, Mm -hmm. but I'm not. Totally sure I wouldn't go shilling over Griffey. Huh. On what basis? Well, on the basis that they're comparable career players Mm -hmm. and that Schilling's Schilling's peak as it was was shorter, but his his peak, 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 peak Mm -hmm. was to me just about as good as Griffey's peak, 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 peak. And he had the bloody sock and he had the postseason. And the bloody sock is pretty cool like it he get like that as far as kind of like historical value that puts him up there with you know griffey's historical value i think and the postseason performance as a whole i mean he basically pitched almost you know a full season as an elite pitcher in the postseason he had 133 innings with a 2-2-3 era in the postseason so that might be what i mean he's other than mariano rivera he is the great postseason performer Mm -hmm. it's him it's him ortiz and rivera yeah, the great postseason performers of the wild card era, and uh, I mean, it's not like he was a bad pitcher. <laughs> Otherwise, no. he was a great, 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 great pitcher. And uh, I don't know. I I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it. I might still go Griffey over him. Mm-hmm. I probably I probably still go Griffey over him. Yeah, I think I would go Griffey over him. <laughs> so, you, but it's close. You mentioned Bonds and Clemens, so it's always fun to look at their percentages compared and see how many people voted for one and not the other. So it was, as always, very close. Bonds, 44.3%. Clemens, 45.2%. So Clemens got four more votes than Bonds did. I mean, at this point, it seems pretty clear that these guys are not ever getting in, right? Does it? I think it does. I mean, they did gain, but they gained less than... I mean, the biggest gainers this year were... In percentage-wise, were Messina at eighteen point four percent, and then after him, Edgar Bagwell, Trammell, who was in his last year of eligibility, Tim Raines, Piazza, and Schilling, and then I think after that it might be Fred McGriff, and so well below double-digit gains. A lot of those gains seem like uh, maybe a, a younger, more sabermetric savvy electorate than we had in the past because. All those guys, Messina and Edgar Reigns, you know, those are all sabermetric favorites. And yet Bonds and Clemens gained, but almost everyone gained, and they gained less than almost all of the real candidates. And there were some high-profile switches, like I think Ken Rosenthal switched to yes, and Jerry Krasnick switched to yes. I think 14 voters maybe switched to yes, but they're nowhere near getting in. And the progress 
really hasn't been there. I mean, there was no progress at all prior to this year. Bonds in his first year of eligibility was 36.2, and then he went 34.7, and then he went 36.8. So basically he gained nothing in his second and third years. And then his fourth year, he gained you know 7.5% or so, but that was probably just a product of who was voting more than minds being changed. And uh, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of momentum. Like the first year when they were on the ballot, I sort of assumed, okay, like it's a, it's a sign that these guys aren't deserving right away because they cheated and everyone knows it and you can't put them in right away and they'll have to be on in purgatory for a while, but they'll gain pretty quickly maybe because, you know, they're the best, best players ever. And you kind of have to have them in the hall of fame one way or another, but there really hasn't been that much movement and it's hard to imagine. I mean, are they really going to go up 30 percentage points in their remaining years on the ballot? That seems hard to imagine unless like on the last year, everyone's just like, okay, fine. We, we made it, we stretched it out long enough for appearances sake, but now we can really put in the best players ever. I'm sort of really starting to doubt that they're going to get in. Yeah. I, you've convinced me. I think there are some people who are waiting until the last year, Uh but you're right. I think you're probably right that, it's not. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to be close enough. It's you know I, I feel like if once one obvious like once one very famous cheater gets in, then it will make it easier. But I just don't know who that first one is going to be. Yeah. And it probably won't be in the night. Like it's not. It probably won't be Manny. No. Manny's not. Manny's not going to be a first ballot guy. So that won't be in time. McGuire is done now. No McGuire longer eligible. McGuire is done. And A Rod. Sosa barely cleared the bar to stay on. A-Rod won't be on the ballot in time, even if he does sail in. And I, we don't know if he will get in or not. We, it'll be interesting to see whether he does. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess you're right. Piazza I mean, and I, Bagwell are as close as you're going to get to someone who's connected to steroids, rightly or wrongly. Yeah. And so it, if you're a voter who thinks that Piazza definitely did steroids and he's in, then does that make you go, okay, well, I guess we're doing this and vote for Bonds next year? I wonder. I don't know. I mean, it's just like a different order of magnitude with those guys. It's not just maybe they used or I think they used. It's like they were <laughs> they were the most using, uh, but, at least with yeah, Bonds. They were, they were the most using. <laughs> but, but, you know, somebody, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Maybe. You're right. I think the most... Like the, I was listening to the podcast last night and Joe Posnanski and Mike Schur went over the Hall of Fame ballot for like two hours and Mike made the point that Sosa is like the guy that you can point to most obviously and say like, this is the day that he started using steroids. I don't, you know, I mean, we don't know for sure exactly when or, or what, but he was just reinvented as a player completely, just became a completely different guy. And Bonds, I guess, did too, but pre-steroids Bonds was obviously a, a no-doubt Hall of Famer already, whereas Sosa wasn't even going to be close to that. Maybe Bonds still has a chance in that he has the pre-steroids period, and so does Clemens, of clear, deserving Hall of Fameness. Maybe eventually that wins out. But Let, let me give you two hypotheticals and I, I, and tell me if you think either one would change. Okay. Let's say that tomorrow somebody, put, or let's say a year from now, after he's inducted, after we're all happy he's in, somebody writes a huge bombshell report showing that Mike Piazza, or since I don't want to tarnish Mike Piazza's name too much, I'll, uh, Barry Larkin or um, anybody who's in on Tom Glavin, doesn't matter, mm-hmm. uh, was just you know, pumping themselves full of every chemical they get their hands on was, you know, dealing in the clubhouse was as much a steroid a, a user as you could ever accuse Bonds of being. And that guy's already in. Mm-hmm. And so now we've got a hall that has cheating Barry Larkin, <laughs> right? <laughs> does that, does that change people's votes? I think so. I, I mean, what is it? Like Tom Boswell said he knows there's a Hall of Famer who's a steroid user. And obviously there are known... Hall of Famers who were amphetamine users and other things. So 
but you kind of have to go looking for that. And it's a long time ago in some cases. So I think, yeah, I think it would change things if a recent inductee were conclusively shown to have used this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it would already, it would say, okay, well, we're putting them in. Mm-hmm. It's weird to have some in and and not others. And Bonds is clearly better than yeah. Sheeton Barry Larkin. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Barry Larkin. <laughs> yeah, you'd still get some people saying, you know, one unfortunate thing or no point in compounding the mistake with further mistakes. But I think once you couldn't even pretend that it was a steroid-free Hall of Fame, then I think some of the the people would fall away. All right, second hypothetical, and this is a two-part hypothetical. Let's say, hypothetically, that this same report came out and it was about Derek Jeter. A, would that, and Jeter, of course, is not inducted. He's not in the Hall of Fame. So A, would that get Barry Bonds' votes? (laughs) B, what percentage would Jeter get in his first ballot? Mm. Maybe that would get some some Barry Bonds' votes from just, fatalistic people we by the way we just had that we had our david ortiz hall of fame discussion the other day as people are having uh-huh. and it, it didn't even really come up that he might also not give like i don't feel like ortiz is gonna lose many votes if any votes yeah yeah doesn't but he, like he won't he won't be he won't be there in time to help bonds and clemens with his uh precedent setting induction right yeah i mean that Maybe the evidence is a little more tenuous in his case than in those guys' cases, but yeah. you're right. Um, yeah, so if Jeter, right, so if Jeter were shown to have used, then you you can't pretend that anyone didn't use anymore. You can't really make an example of anyone and say he's the guy who didn't, he did it clean because Jeter was the poster boy for that throughout his career. So maybe, yeah, maybe that does persuade a few anti-Bonds Clemens people and just, you know, who would say everyone was taking, there's no avoiding it. It was the era. You'd still have some people who wouldn't vote for anyone from that era. The occasional person has had that position, but I think, yeah, I think it would help a little. And what would Jeter get on his first year on the ballot? Ah, man, I think he'd still get more than Bonds and Clemens did on their first. So, you know, mid thirties, even though he was clearly not the player that they were Maybe like just his good works would uh, <laughs> kind of <laughs> like pay off some of his PED debt, his inspiring kids and setting an example, except that all of that is a fraud now. So I don't know, maybe he'd be punished even more for being such a hypocrite. I'd go like 58 to 64% somewhere wow. in there. Okay. Huh. All right. All right. I had, I had more. Oh, did you? A couple things. Well, just, you know, one thing I think the... The crisis is kind of over. Like for the last couple of years, we've been, you know, when are we going to get this backlog worked out? There are all these guys dropping off the ballot because there aren't enough spaces and the writers were trying to raise the limit from 10 to 12 or whatever it was. And this year there were 7.95 names per ballot, which was down from 8.42 last year, I think, and 8.39 the year before that. And only like 41% of people used all 10 slots, which was down from 51% the previous year. So the backlog one way or another has kind of cleared a little bit. And with Griffey and Piazza getting off and McGuire being off the ballot and Trammell being off the ballot and really only a few, no doubt, people coming on the next few years, it seems like the crisis has kind of passed and we're almost at the point where 10 is enough. Like we, we knew that was going to be the case. There maybe is still no reason to have a limit, but it seems like maybe in the next couple of years, we'll get to the point where even if you are a pretty big hall person, you could vote for everyone you want to vote for on this 10 person ballot. And it seems like next year, Bagwell and Reigns will get in. And one of the last things I wanted to ask about was Trevor Hoffman, who it seems like will also get in. Are you surprised about the overwhelming Trevor Hoffman support, which was, uh, what, 67.3%? And I think as Jay pointed out, the average weight for someone who starts off that high is like 1.75 years. So he's almost certainly going to be elected before Rivera is even on the ballot. You know, he wouldn't he wouldn't be on, on mine, but 
I'm not that surprised. I guess I'm a, a little surprised. I, I don't I don't know. I haven't seen what the argument is for him over Lee Smith. And so I guess I'm a little surprised that, you know, roughly 30% of the the electorate is that much more excited about him than Lee Smith. I yeah. mean, I, neither, I wouldn't put either one in, but they both used to have a record, right. the same record. Uh-huh. And that's it. That's like, that's the whole thing. Yeah. And Billy Wagner got 10.5% of the vote. I mean, I'm not surprised about that. That I would, I'd vote for Wagner over Hoffman, even with the, you know, even with Hoffman's greater historical value, but I'm not at all surprised about that. But I mean, like really like the Hoffman and Lee Smith thing, they, they literally had their cases are like basically identical. They both pitched for a long time mm-hmm. in an important role, in a famous role, and they both held the exact same record and now neither does. Yeah. And I'm not sure why Hoffman breaks through when Lee Smith doesn't, but I also know that when Trevor Hoffman was pitching, we all really liked him. Mm-hmm. We all, the whole baseball world liked him. He was super popular. Uh, and uh, probably really popular with writers and really popular with everybody. So I guess for that reason, I'm not as surprised that there's more good vibes toward him. Yeah, wouldn't it's um, like you said, when a guy gets that many votes, he basically always makes it in. Mm-hmm. And when he gets that many votes in his first ballot, he definitely always gets it in. I would say about Hoffman that if ever there was somebody who was going to debut at 67% and not get inducted, <laughs> it would be him. Uh-huh. Like I, I sort of feel like Trevor Hoffman is sort of an example of like, uh, you know, like when like the Veronica Mars movie debuts in the theaters or whatever, (laughs) like it's going to have a pretty big drop off the second weekend. And because everybody who wants to see it is going to go see it the first weekend. And I, it's not that I think Hoffman is going to have it. I think Hoffman will get inducted next year. Uh, But I would guess that there's a lot less like eagerness among non-Hoffman voters to vote for Hoffman next year than there is for, you know, comparable guys. Yeah. I mean, when Huffman retired, I think I thought of him as a likely Hall of Famer, but I'm sort of surprised that he got this much support now because at the time there was a lot of support for relievers getting into the Hall and Raleigh Fingers was getting in and Bruce Suter was getting in and Gossage was getting in. And so by that standard, Huffman should probably be in. But uh, in the years since, it's gotten a lot harder for these guys to get in. And, and Lee Smith sort of missed that boat, yet Trevor Hoffman still gets a ticket on that boat for some reason. So that is kind of confusing to me. The other thing that there is still a big private versus public differential, which maybe sort of surprises me. In some cases, there wasn't. Like the Piazza differential was only 4%, 4 percentage points, so not a lot. But in other cases, still, even though the electorate was cold, there's still a huge gap. Tim Raines had a 20 percentage point gap between his private and public. The the public voters would have elected him. 77.8% of them had him on their ballot. And the private voters, only 58.1%. Messina was close to the same differential. So I we've talked about what the reason for that gap is before, and it's not totally clear whether it's people who are afraid to vote a certain way or whether it's just different age groups in those those two groups, but still a, a very significant gap. And maybe if all of those vote, votes are made public, which conceivably could happen before next year or in the next couple of years, maybe that will still be a bump for some of those guys, or maybe it won't be. And very last thing, we got a question from a listener named Frazier last night. This was something I was going to bring up too. He says, in the Edgar Martinez Hall of Fame debate, a lot is made of him only being a DH. While this seems unfair, it had got me wondering if you could make the opposite argument in favor of Gary Sheffield, i.e. not DH enough. Their batting credentials seem similar. Edgar favored slightly in slash line. Sheffield, longer career, more home runs. But Sheffield is cumulatively the worst fielder of all time <laughs> per Fangraph's leaderboard. Should we hold it against him that he opted to play in the National League when considering his Hall of Fame case? And hmm. I guess you you can make that case that, that if Sheffield had been... Because people make that case about Edgar that if there hadn't been a DH, he would have just been a bad fielder. He was such a good hitter that he still would have played in a corner somewhere or first base or wherever. 
and he just would have been bad at that. And it wouldn't necessarily have made him more valuable if he had been a fielder because he would have been a bad fielder. And in Sheffield's case, you can sort of put that in reverse, like purely on offensive value. He was a Hall of Fame caliber hitter, I think, but at baseball reference, he has negative 28.6 defensive war. So if you just took that away and, you know, maybe you'd have to adjust his, his offense a little bit because he was at DH and maybe the offensive standards are a little higher there. But still, if you just, his offensive war is like 80. So he's a guy who, if he had been a DH, might have been more valuable. Maybe he would have even had a better case. I'm not sure. But he is kind of what Edgar would have looked like if Edgar had been forced to field. That's a really good point because a lot of times you are asking whether a guy should be held uh, accountable for his manager's decision. You know, does A-Rod, not that A-Rod's going to come up short on war or anything like that, but does do you when you look at A-Rod's war, do you... Ha- look at him as an eight win player during his prime? Or do you say, well, it's not his fault that Jeter made him go to third and uh, really he could have been a nine win player, that sort of a thing. But the idea that it was a choice by Sheffield for most of his career to play in the NL does put a little twist on it. Yeah. Uh, Worse hitter, more batting runs on baseball reference than Edgar, quite a bit fewer than Manny. Uh Uh, And Manny is... I don't know. Do you think of Manny as a DH or as an outfielder? I think of him as an outfielder. Goodness gracious, Ben. He only played 300 games at DH. Yeah. Manny Ramirez. Mm-hmm. Huh. I guess. That makes sense. <laughs> he, he was playing with David Ortiz, and then he went to the Dodgers, and then yeah. he kept getting suspended. <laughs> so I guess... Uh, he, all right, let's play a game. Okay. Uh, how many... What percentage of Jim Tomey's starts came at DH? I'll say 53. Okay. Uh, it's actually um, 32%. Huh, okay. Wait, play again. With what percentage What percentage did Edgar Martinez play at DH? 79. It is 68. Huh. So I think that what, I think what we've discovered here between those three guys that I just said is that we, everybody who ever played DH, we think played a lot more DH than they actually played. Yeah. Like even even Edgar, we missed. They all played the field more than we thought they did. Yeah, that's huh. true. All right, yeah. No, Sheffield, I think if Sheffield was a Hall of Famer, that's a good, uh, if was a DH, it's a very good question. I think he probably doesn't get there. Uh-huh. Okay, all right, this was long. You can... Send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And rate and review. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can also support our sponsor, the Play Index at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP. Get the discounted price $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back tomorrow. Life outside the diamond is a wrench.